In a world where high-performance, zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda of most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. So, yes, my name is Adam Muggleton, and I am the co-host of the Edifice Complex, and I am most definitely an agitator against the status quo, possibly an angry old man. We will have to see over the course of events, right? So the purpose of this first episode, so everyone, welcome if you're listening, and this is episode number 001. Robert and I have started this podcast because we are both of a certain age, which shall remain nameless. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to share that. We're not going to share that. But we're enthusiastic about the future. We like innovation. We like technology. But we are also both very frustrated with the standard and state of property development, design and construction. And we want to try and make a difference about that. So we've started a podcast to try and find people and highlight good people, good work, good innovation, and try and describe a direction where things are going. Right. Right? That's what we're trying to do. And this episode is where I will interview Robert, and Robert will interview me very briefly, so you can get a handle on our worldviews, our philosophies, and the various levels of dysfunction going on in our heads, or mine mostly. (laughs) (laughs) So I will start and interview Robert. So... I have known Robert. I first met Robert maybe 10 years ago when I was doing a CPD course and I had to do a training course to get a certain number of hours. And he was teaching, uh, I think it was heating system design or cooling system design. I went in and he spoke about radiant heating, which to some of my peers when I was living in Toronto was new technology. But Robert, like myself, realized it was a 2,000-year-old technology. So from that moment on, I bonded. (laughs) Well, you were... You were the only person in the room that knew anything about valve authority and knew about Robert Pettijon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's why we, right away we had something in common. <laughs> so let's, let's get to the bottom of who is Robert. So, Robert, how would you describe your job? I, I get asked that question a lot, Adam, and I still struggle with it. I don't see myself as having a job. I have, I have made a career out of following the relationships between the health sciences and the building sciences and manufacturing, product design, indoor environmental ergonomics, and really have, as I've gotten older and more grayer, discovered the pieces of the puzzle and and have been fortunate to see these pieces start to fit together. And and there's and so this career of mine has been a witness to some fabulous architecture that it goes around the world and been able to meet some of the people that were involved in those designs and in those constructions. But at the same time, while you're building this puzzle, 
that you really started to understand, you see all of the frustrations that exist, which doesn't have to happen. And you and I have talked about this a lot, right? And part of it has to do, and I've written about this a lot. In fact, I'm going to be talking about this on more of my lectures about the difference between integrated design and segregated design and the status quo. And you and I, one of the, one of the DNAs of this podcast is to take on the status quo. And the status quo is notorious for segregated design. It keeps people in silos and it prevents the design professionals from having really meaningful conversations amongst themselves so that they can discuss solutions that benefit the owner and the owner's project. But what happens with segregated design is that people then become more internally focused on what's good for them rather than what's good for the project. Could I categorize you then as the anti-catalog engineering? (laughs) (laughs) Anti the guy who just stomps a rooftop unit out of a catalog on a roof and goes, that is awesome. I'm an engineer. Good night. Yeah, I'm not that guy. I'm not the rooftop guy. <laughs> Good. <laughs> not at all. And you know what? It's funny, Adam, because when, when I started to study, you know, human physiology and human psychology as it relates to the indoor environments and started to realize that the body already provides all the direction we need as architects and engineers, interior designers, property developers, the body provides guidance on how we should make architecture it does it and it does it elegantly and a rooftop unit is not elegant there's nowhere on the human body that you would slap <laughs> you know you wouldn't put on your head a rooftop unit it, it looks ugly it doesn't function well it makes noise so using the human body's own elegance and both its sophistication and simplicity to design buildings and we look at you know, organs, for example, the heart and the lungs and the lungs, you know, being sort of the respiratory system of the, of the building and the distribution of blood flow to me is no different than having PEX pipe in a radiant system. You're moving heat from one place to another. The body does that. You know, there's no batteries. There's no instruction manual. As long as you stay healthy, your HVAC systems, your lighting systems, your electrical systems, your control systems in your body work beautifully. And, uh, and it wasn't until I started to study that that I realized that there's a relationship, you know, between architecture, interior design, and engineering with the human body, and then bringing all of that together. So you're right. I am the anti-status quo engineer from that perspective. So yeah, basically, you're you're about holistic design, and designing sort of biomimicry is not not the right word here, but you know, it's about designing for the end user, right? not just not getting sued and getting the oversized piece of equipment on the roof so I can just move on to the next job. Yeah, that's just, (laughs) and then, you know, we talk about that, right? I mean, how sad that is for clients because, you know, when someone retains a design team to build a building for them, and even let's just say maybe it's speculative building or maybe it's their own building, there's a commitment, a financial commitment to that structure, but there's also a financial or, or a commitment to the occupants that are going to be in that building. And so how long is that building going to last? Pick a number, 50 years, 100 years. So you're going to have 100 years of populations moving through that building over time. And you can either have 
no care for those people, in which case you build the cheapest building that you possibly can. You have no concern for energy, so it's inefficient. You have no concern for lighting, sound, thermal comforts. It's a piece of crap, <laughs> right? And so you build a piece of crap for 100 years. And so for 100 years, people get to experience your crappy building. That's a completely different experience than when the owner uh, takes on responsibility for the occupants in that space in terms of their ability to learn, their ability to be productive, their ability to share what they've experienced in that space with the people in their lives, which means that if I'm working in a really great building, you know, where I can focus on the tasks at hand, do it with the most utmost accuracy because the environment allows me to focus and then go back to my house, which might not have the same characteristics, then I begin to hate my house. (laughs) (laughs) And then I start to look for a new house. And depending on where I am in my evolution as a person, it's different than when you're 20 versus when you're 40 or you're building your last house, so your retirement home when you're 50 or 60. And I know from our own practices that when people are building their last house, their retirement home, they're looking for all of the same things that we find in really good commercial spaces. They're quiet. They've got great indoor air quality. The thermal comfort is wonderful. There's no maintenance or very low maintenance involved. And so those character traits that they've experienced in good buildings, they can now understand what that is and they can apply it when they start shopping for a new home. Okay. So here's a question. Why is it the way it is? Why are engineers and technicians not producing these buildings that really work? You know, I, I take it down to illiteracy. They're illiterate. <laughs> and, 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 and that has some connotations, that word, illiterate, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a hard I mean, word. It's a hard word. Um, there's illiteracy because of poverty. There's illiteracy because of the status quo. You know, this is what you're going to learn, and this is what you shall only learn, and you shall not learn anything else. And then there's illiteracy because you've chosen to remain ignorant. It's this, you know, I'm not, I, I don't need to learn that stuff. It's not my ballywick. It's somebody else's responsibility. And I think illiteracy is rampant in the world of engineering and architecture and interior design. And one of the things that to get out of that is that we have to make people literate. We have to educate them on the, all of these pieces of the puzzles that fit together. And when you look at some really good buildings like the Manitoba Hydro Building or the research building in Boulder, Colorado or the Bullet Building in Seattle or some of the buildings that you've worked on in the United Arab Emirates, they had people on the design teams that were not illiterate. They were very literate. They were well-educated. They understood how things fit together. And most of those buildings put the person at the center of the design process. So, for example, in the Manitoba Hydro building, that building was owned by Manitoba Hydro. And so that became their headquarters. That was their building. And so they knew that this wasn't a leased building. This was their building. This was their people. Productivity was important for them. Learning was important for them. So the design teams 
that were on that structure were all literate. They're all educated about human physiology, human psychology. What does it mean to have different colors, different shapes, the ergonomics? You know, what does it mean to be sustainable in your construction decision-making process? All of these things came together. And, and because of these literate people, these educated, well-voiced people, they got a good building. And... I think that's. I think illiteracy is the reason why we have these flawed structures. Yeah, I, I think it's a lack of information or literacy on the part of the owners and occupiers and the engineers. You know, people don't know what to ask for or what good or not good looks like until they're in there and it's uncomfortable, right? right. So there is illiteracy there. But what I'm hearing is it's almost uh, – an argument for meta-learning, right? So you graduate from university with your engineering degree or your diploma, you feel good, mum's proud of you, you move into a job, <laughs> you start getting ground down. But there is a responsibility, which is the individual's responsibility, to learn and relearn and learn and relearn, right? Yeah. And I think in many ways, your career is the epitome of that. I mean, what you've come through, Adam, and, and maybe like, like, let's talk about what you've come through, you know, where you got started and what you learned over your years as a property developer and then working in as, as, as an engineer and now working around the globe on these particular projects. Like, share with our listeners your story because I think it's really important that they hear it. Yeah, so my, my story is I started as a sort of technician, a building services technician, just because my mom wouldn't let me sleep in till three every day. And so oh, bad, Mom. most people in commissioning sort of fall into it. No one wakes up as a teenager and goes, God damn it, I'm going to be a commissioning engineer. <laughs> Who says that? No one. <laughs> but luck and fate is a funny thing, right? So I wound up in an interesting job that challenged me and it was something you could train in and I did it. And it was great and I really enjoyed it. I then took a turn when I was older into property development because I did a master's in project management and when I was working in the UK at that point, to be a property developer, you had to be a chart surveyor, and the master's degree was a way of getting that. And that was interesting because by the time I went into property development as a development manager, I'd had 20 years in the commissioning and engineering realm, and I thought I knew a little bit about buildings and how they were done. <laughs> and when you become a property developer and you're in charge of the money, I think the word, I was seven years as a property developer, and the word commissioning left my lips maybe twice in seven years. Because oh you worry about things like the cost of steel, the cost of concrete, how many elevators can I get out out this building and improve the net to gross ratio and the efficiency and the leadable space. It's all about the money, right? Now, does that mean property developers are evil? No, it doesn't. What it means is they are profit-maximizing rational beings, the way <laughs> most economists think all of us are. But then you've got the human factor in there that's not really catered for, right? So, you know, uh, what I came to understand was that property developers, when they lease you a building, they don't lease you a building. In their mind, you have committed to give them a certain amount of money in so many payments. That is the mindset you're dealing with. <laughs> cash flow. Yeah, it's a cash thing. And that doesn't mean they're trying to give you bad buildings, but there's, a, there's an economic equation there, right? So I am personally, my, my personal philosophy is I'm libertarian. I'm super left on some things, super right on others. But the one thing I think the government can do well that will make a big influence is legislate for building code, legislate for greener buildings, because developers are not going to do it on their own. And owners and occupiers don't really know what to ask for because it's a 
sophisticated, highly technical landscape, right? You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, one of, one of the sayings I have is that minimums in code become maximum in practice. Yes, absolutely right. The floor becomes a ceiling, right? <laughs> right, exactly. The floor becomes a ceiling. And you're right. So when you say and when, until governments get involved, we will always see the floor as the, as the maximum rather than raising the ceiling. So anyways, I didn't mean to interrupt any because you were on a roll, but I, I, that's what happens, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, it's all, I'm all over the place here like a mad woman, but it's the thing that drives you, right? Because it was a revelation for me. Having been in the engineering world for 20 years, I thought, oh, I've got this thing nailed, right? And then you get there and everything you thought you knew was important is super unimportant. <laughs> so unimportant. I spent the first year there thinking, I must be the dumbest guy in this office. I'm not even sure I'm going to make it. You know, and it was, they, yeah. to, to be fair, they took pity on me and sort of knocked me down and built me back up again in the right way in their eyes. And you come yeah. out of it with a very, very different view of things. So whilst I have a lot of sympathy for the engineering challenges and, you know, you get the architect saying, oh, I want this facade and the developers going, get rid of one of these elevators. I need more floor space. I understand that. (laughs) But I also understand the engineering side of that as well, right? So there is always a trade-off. The problem, I think, is the engineers are low on the food chain. Let's be honest, right? And when they start squealing, which is normally too late in in the process, you know, they're not getting what they need. There has to be a way to elevate engineering, up the food chain in the design process. And this is where yeah. the integrated design process comes in, right? That totally is agree. one of the, I have my love-hate relationship with LEED, but one of the great things about it is the way it promotes the integrated design process. So I'm all in on that. But, yeah. you know, for me, why, why am I starting this podcast for you? I think my daughter is a, just about to start her fourth year as a mechanical engineering student, right? So she wants to be a mechanical engineer. So the question, seeing the world through her eyes for the last three or four years has been amazing, right? Because I'm just an mm-hmm. old guy, right? What do I know? And she, seeing her struggles, right? So she wants to be a mechanical engineer. So who is the Muhammad Ali or the Conor McGregor of mechanical engineers? Who can she model herself on? She wanted to be an MMA fighter. There are loads yeah. of people she could model herself on and, and right. see examples of excellence, right? So, you know, who who is that person in mechanical engineering or architecture? Maybe it's a bit more obvious because you've got star architects. Yeah. But in the engineering realm, I, I have my opinions. You know, Peter Rumsey might be one of them, right? But yeah. Jeff, Jeff McDonald might be another one. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. how's my daughter find these people? <laughs> yeah. So that's no, an it's, interesting it's, thing for me. It's very true. And I mean, it's, and I can appreciate, you know, being a father uh, that your daughter is going through that and and you want them to follow those people that have the vision and the innovation and, but the courage to step up and say what needs to be said when it comes to energy and indoor environments and systems, because as you know, I mean, value engineering uh, is something that we all dread. You know, we, we get hired as consultants and we spend a lot of time thinking about the science and doing the math and then developing the drawings and the schematics. And just when you think you've got it done, somebody steps into your office and says, we've got to cut X percentage off the project. <laughs> that used to be my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you dirty, rotten bastard, you. <laughs> so, and you're going, do you know what that means yeah. to start taking stuff out? There's a domino effect. It's not like you just can't take balancing valves out and then say it's going to be fine. That's not how it works. Yeah. Right? Uh, I it's... mean, <laughs> it's so 
I think your question about where does the young engineer go for models that they can, you know, model their careers after. Yeah. And, you know, if you're young and enthusiastic and the difference between my daughter as a student and her friends and me when I was in the early 80s and my friends is, for us, we were like the children of Thatcher, right? I come from London. So it was all about me and the guy who dies with the most toys wins, right? It's not like that now. Right. Her generation are so much more informed about what is going on and what are the ills of the world, and they actually have a bit of a passion to fix things, right? It, they do. Yeah, and one of the things I want to do with this podcast is I want you and I to unearth these people, give them a platform where they can explain what they're doing, explain the innovation they're trying to push, explain the change they're trying to make, and be the example, and then people – students, engineering students or building design students around the world can find these people, listen to them, and then follow up with them, right, and have them as examples. Because if I was starting again, I wanted to be a mechanical engineer, whether I would is another question. <laughs> but if I started again, I was passionate to be a mechanical engineer, I would absolutely want to find someone who was excellent, living a great life with it, you know, being the example, not just the engineering example, but the example yeah. of how to be a thought leader, an innovator, an engineer, and lead a great life and still go home on time-ish, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that is a combination that's not easy to find. They're out there. No, and, it, and I think engineering, the world of engineering and, and engineering technology, those are noble professions. They make a difference. They make a difference, and I think the world needs to understand how engineer the engineering community protects everybody and provides a way for us to continue on our lives in whatever capacity. If we want to talk about transportation, there's transportation engineers. If you want to talk about energy, there's energy engineers. If you want to talk about you know flight, flight engineer. I mean, the word engineer, which of course is owned by engineers. But there's so many fields of science that engineers are involved in, and we've always sort of been in the background. Yeah, your engineers are the unsung heroes, right? The engineers yeah. that brought in sanitation, clean water, and taking human waste away saved almost as many lives as mosquito nets. Right. Who cares about them guys? Yeah. No one even knows who they are, right? <laughs> yeah, exa exactly. Yeah. You know, the so, engineers make a difference. I mean, when my daughter decided she wanted to be an engineer, I was really pleased. I, I deliberately didn't try and push her in that direction. But for me as a father, I love it because there's the possibility for her to make a difference to the world, right? And I said, you know, she, who knows how her career is going to go, but there's the possibility to impact, right? The built environment is very important. And oh, there's some ridiculous statistic about something like 70 or 80% of people are going to live in cities soon. So the built environment's yeah. not going away as an issue, right? And it can certainly no. improve. Now, I have to go on a rant here, right? So when I was doing my master's degree, a I had a warning, professor, and he used to challenge us. I think he was playing with our mind mostly, but one of the ongoing debates I had with him during the course of my two years was, why are cars and buildings so different? Now, I don't mean that in absolute terms. So like a car, since Second World War, the quality of cars has gone up exponentially, using TQM, Total Quality Control Management, right? Um, the price has gone down relative to inflation, right? And the quality is just awesome, right? Yeah. So let's compare that to buildings. 
Have buildings gone down <laughs> relative inflation? No, they've gone up with well, inflation. Right? Has the quality improved? Uh, yeah. Let's be generous and say it's probably par. So you know, when you buy a new car, you get in that car, they give you the key, you go, here, Adam, here's your new car. Let's pretend it's a Porsche. Right? <laughs> and <laughs> I expect that car to be perfect. There's not a blemish. Every piece of technology is completely integrated mechanically, electrically, aesthetically. It works. If there was even one tiny little thing that didn't work, I would be back in that garage like crazy, right? So let's compare that to a high-performance lead platinum building, say, right? Sure. Have you ever seen a zero-defect high-performance building that works with no problems? 37 well, years into my career, I've not seen that. Only in my dreams. Right? So this is, the, this is what I call I'm a big fan of pop culture as well. This is what I call a unicorn factor. I can describe a unicorn in perfect detail. Looks like a horse, got a pointy thing on its head, nice rainbow-coloured yeah. mane, right? Yeah. But that doesn't mean it exists, right? <laughs> you know, right. a high-performance zero-defect building at the moment for me is a unicorn. It's like a dragon. It's a mythical right. thing that one day yeah. I will find, maybe, at the end of a rainbow. Who knows? <laughs> but, you know, so this is the difference between consumers started to demand cars that started on time, look great, and integrate the technology in their lives, right? But consumers are not making that same demand for housing or commercial buildings. Yeah, and that's a really interesting point because when you think of in terms of, let's talk cost and let's talk about time. So in terms of cost, the cost of a home relative to the cost of a car, and of course that, that, that depends how big the house is, how big the car is and that kind of stuff. But it's probably easy enough to say that a car would cost one twentieth the price of a house, and the person shopping for the car will do a tremendous amount of background work in that car model, the, the make and model. They'll go on and they'll look at reviews, what other drivers have said about the car. You know, they'll get in it, they'll test drive the car, they'll smell it, they'll feel it, they'll hear it. They want to have a, a sensory experience with that vehicle. But when it comes to a house, for example. They don't follow the same process. You know, no one asks about the electrical, the structural, the energy efficiency. They get they, what happens is they get polluted by the visual stimulation, the, the aesthetics. You know, the geometry, the brass, the countertops, those sort of visually stimulating things. And what they ought to do is actually close their eyes and then walk into that building and spend some time smelling the building, listening to the building, feeling the building, and then open up their eyes. One of my last development jobs in the UK was a massive um, office development with included a residential tower. So it's very, it was made very clear to me. It was my first residential job. It made very clear to me, Adam, there's only two things that sell apartments, kitchens and bathrooms. Everything else can be dog shit, quite frankly, right? <laughs> right? And with office space, it's common spaces in the lobby and the public realm. Floor space, as long as it's efficient from a you know square footage point of view, square meters, right. no one cares. Right? So okay. Services in that building, really, no one cares. So yeah. every office building we did in London was either four-pipe fan cool unit or chill beam because yeah. that's what the market expected, right? So it's very hard to break. There's a there's a lot of path dependency in buildings, right? It's a brave developer yeah. that goes away from that. However, the Manitoba hydros of this world 
who are building for themselves. That's a different story, right? Yeah, absolutely. Those people can make the difference because when they yeah. set that standard, then the developers will follow it, right? So there's there's all sorts of complicated reasons why it is the way it is. But the bottom line is it ain't good enough in my view. <laughs> yeah, that leads into sort of, you know, the podcast and why we're doing it. And I mean, you and I have, have spent hours talking about you know, what this podcast is all about and, and what we want to leave behind as a legacy of knowledge. And so we've sort of shared back and forth here the last 20 minutes or so, sort of our own philosophies. But let's talk about the podcast and, and the the type of people that, that we're out interviewing and uh, that we're going to be interviewing. Why don't you share with the audience what what that's going to mean to them? Yeah, so what we're trying to do, one thing... To make clear is we're trying to create evergreen content here. So this content will be up there for as long as we can keep it up there, hopefully years and years, and it hopefully mm-hmm. will be relevant if you listen to it tomorrow or the next year or the year after, right? So, you know, some 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 of our guests will talk about innovation that might be like over time might diminish, but we're talking also about principles and design philosophies and how to get things done and how to change a system that is embedded in supply chain path dependency, right? Right. So some of the people we've interviewed so far who are coming up, we're inter- we've interviewed uh, the global head of sustainability for Alice Don, one of the largest construction firms in North America, and he is very much on a mission to change the status quo. They have a thing called the Carbon Impact Initiative where they're trying to mm-hmm. go to carbon-based analysis of buildings. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. So, again, we'll signpost these episodes when they come. We got an episode in October with a person called Holly Chant, who is the head of uh, sustainability for one of the largest design firms in the Middle East. And she was a great interview because she really understands from a philosophical point of view what performance is. In her mind, performance is a thing of beauty. I loved it when she said that. Yeah, that that was great. That was awesome. I've used that so many times since because performance in and of itself, in Holly Chant's opinion, is beautiful. And this is yeah. the other thing, right? A Porsche can look beautiful, and it does to me because I just like them, right? But, yeah. you know, it's a thing of beauty, as great architecture is, right? But the performance within it is embedded, right? And this is the thing with buildings. The performance is embedded in it. So you can right. admire a building, and a great building, you can draw it in under five seconds, right? <laughs> Iconic building. <laughs> but <laughs> the performance that's embedded with it is really hard to see and appreciate sometimes, right? Right, and I think one of the one of the things that our audience will get out of that particular podcast is has to do with performance as beauty, but also the integration and then the impact that that has on culture and the world at large. And there's some and there were some really inspirational messages in that for young engineers uh, in school. Um, we also had some. Indiv- I mean, we've talked. We so far uh, we've talked to people from really all over the world. We talked to an in- interesting professor, didn't we? There's a couple. There's a couple of really interesting ones. So one guy I want to talk about first is Jerry Udelson. So Jerry Udelson was on the front cover of Wired magazine, and he was anointed at that point the Godfather of Green Buildings. I don't think he asked them to do that; they just did that. And he was great. He was a really good interview. Now he is someone who was really involved in the green building movement in North America, and he's one of the founding fathers of LEED, in effect. And he's now on a bit of a anti-lead rant, and he's not doing it in a bitchy way. He's doing it in an analytical way. He's analyzing so. the benefits yeah. and the disbenefits and the actual outcomes 
And when you look at it from a hard analysis point of view, who was it Ben Shapiro says, you know, the facts don't care about your feelings, right? Right, right. <laughs> and this is where Jerry's going with it. Yeah, he's a, he is a green building advocate for sure. But what he's saying is the facts, lead has served a purpose and it's got us to a point, but the facts at the moment do not support that it's going to take us to another new plateau higher up, right? Right. And his yeah. question is, what are we doing about that? Yeah. So that was a great podcast for me because he really, really um, sort of challenges the status quo. And the other one was Dr. Roland Clift, right? We, had yeah. a, we have yeah. a podcast with Dr. Roland Clift on ethics, ethics in engineering and building. And that was very interesting for me. It made me think a lot. Yeah, well, and what was cool was actually getting him on the podcast. Yeah. Because there was a lot of um, um, apprehension because he didn't really know where he would fit in. Like he didn't see the value that maybe he could bring to to our audience. And at the end of that interview, I thought, this is exactly what our audience needs to hear. And I, yeah. and I think he, I think towards the end, he started to appreciate um, the value that he was bringing to, the, yes. to our discussion. Yeah, he, he he was like trying to land a big Merlin fish, right? You're pulling it in yeah. and then it's getting away. But yeah. once he got on and understood that we were what we were trying to do, he was brilliant. And I defy anyone not to be challenged by his thinking and what he's saying in this podcast because it certainly challenged me. 37 years in, I like to think I'm open-minded, but I, I came away having a deep think about some of the things he was saying. Uh, yeah. Very interesting. And the other person who I really enjoyed interviewing was Peter Simmons, who was a designer of Bangkok Airport. So for people who don't know, Bangkok International Airport is a big international art park airport, aren't they all? But it yeah. is in a tropical climate, heavily tropical climate, and it has radiant cooling system. So kudos to yeah. the man who was brave enough to give that a green light and kudos oh, yeah. to the man who designed it. And we interviewed the man who designed it and it was awesome. And then we had, and I really love these interviews that we've had with a couple of young recent graduates uh, from universities, one who's now working uh, with Well uh, Living Building Program, the Delos Group, and another one who's a professor at the University of Texas. And both um, young minds, enthusiastic, passionate, uh, open to all possibilities. Like they haven't been tainted. They haven't been <laughs> you know, beaten down by the system yet, right? <laughs> that's right. They, the status quo has not sucked them up and ground them down into pulp. They were also great talking to them because they really talked about possibilities and the potential and, you know, where things can go and what, what could be possible. I was also really motivated by those uh, two lectures. So, so to, to wrap things up a bit, what we're trying to do here is – create evergreen content that is useful for anyone who wants to listen to it. We're trying to find people, young, old, and in between, who are challenging the status quo, and not just pure engineering from a design perspective, architectural perspective, a procurement perspective, construction, technology, and ethics. Yeah. Ethics was the most uh, awesome one out there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and the other thing, as a call to action to people who are listening and I, as people sort of start to listen to podcasts, we are looking for interesting people to interview. We're, we're going to do one, we're going to post one interview a month. So it's going to be one episode yep. every month on the 15th of every month. And we are going to be 
hopefully doing this for many years and we are constantly looking for interesting people to interview. Now, let's clarify what I mean by interesting. I don't want someone to get on our podcast and read me their resume. At that point, I think I will shoot myself before I cut off the mic. (laughs) What we're looking for are people who, who are working at the bleeding edge of something or trying to change a really embedded path dependent something or know of a great project that is a great example of great work, but it's just not known, right? I, right. I, I worked on a job in Armenia, which was cutting edge. No one knows about it. I might have to do yeah. my own podcast one day. Yeah. <laughs> I've interview interview, myself. Interview yeah. <laughs> so, you know, there are jobs out there. And again, this is not, to be clear, this is not a North America thing. So I'm a British guy who's a Canadian citizen with American kids, and I travel and work. I've worked, traveled and worked in 20 countries so far. I don't even know what I am anymore, right? I am not interested in things being, oh, this is American, oh, the Brits are great. Not interested in that. I'm right. only interested in excellence. Yeah. I'm interested in the finding people who can and are willing to try and design the Porsche of buildings. And that doesn't mean they have to be expensive. Why can't affordable housing be built to a high standard? Absolutely. Yeah. But and but it's all about principles, right? The people that we've talked to so far and the people that we're currently courting, the discussions that we have are all principle based. Those principles will last the test of time. You know, so not we're, we're not necessarily we're not well, we're definitely not looking for people who are on a fad program, you know. Uh, we're looking for people who have long-term visions about how things ought to be. And we've found them so far, and we're going to continue to find those people because that's our mission. Our, yeah, absolutely. Our, your, your job and my job is to find these individuals, and if people are listening to this now know of those people and they can help us find them, then we want to share that story, their story with the world. Yep. We're not interested in credit. Full credit, when anyone brings it up, we just want to get good people out there and introduce them to the world and give them a yep. platform to strut their stuff. We've got – so the first episode is going to be – dropped on the 15th of September. And there are going to be two episodes. There's going to be this episode where Robert and I hopefully introduce ourselves to you in a way that's vaguely coherent and not off-putting. And then we're going to have episode number two immediately drop with it, which is an interview with Nicholas Clements, PhD. So he's one of the young, enthusiastic, uh, clever people we interviewed, and he works with the Wellbuilding Institute. So that's an interesting podcast. So I hope you enjoy it. And we will get better at interviewing, I promise you, and sound audio engineering and everything as we go along. So please bear with us as we hopefully become more and more professional at this. Robert, yeah. you got anything you want to wrap up with? I just say this is, you know, it's a great journey. I'm really glad to be sharing this journey with you, Adam. You know, together, the both of us have a lot to bring uh, to the world of architecture, engineering, interior design, property development. And I think as we travel on this journey, we're going to learn a lot of cool stuff. And we're going to learn there's people out there that have that key that needs to be inserted into the lock to open up the doors that's necessary for us to move forward. We'll find them. Okay, everyone. So that's it. So just one more thing to say. If you think you can hear a power drill, occasionally you can. Um, We just had to get this done. And, you know, we're not trying to be the BBC here. We're just trying to get content out and we will get better. So absolutely bear with us. Okay. So I hope you enjoy everyone and we will see you every month. You've been listening to the edifice complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean to access show notes for this episode, visit edifice complex podcast.com. 
If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. See you next time.